You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word or in a Black Pew Bible that you may have nearby to our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And if you're using the Black Pew Bible, you can find that, of course, toward the end of the New Testament on page 191. Page 191. I mentioned earlier that we have a theme really working its way through our service this morning, which is the theme of spiritual riches. And in particular, the freedom that comes when we involve ourselves or we gain clear access through Christ by His grace to the enormous spiritual riches that have been given to us. They have been promised to us by him. They have been recorded for us in his word. They are guaranteed by his life and death and resurrection to be ours forevermore, not because of anything that we have done. We know that. This is not an arrogant claim that that we have claimed because of who we are to something incredible in our lives, but that we have claimed to something because of who he is and what he has given to our lives. And that brings enormous freedom. And we want to explore that this morning as we look at these verses in Revelation chapter 3. I don't know that I was terribly surprised, but it really brought it into view for me recently when I read that a third of all medicine prescriptions go unfilled. And that half of the remaining two-thirds are not properly taken and they never reach their full use. Isn't that an amazing statistic? It really highlights again for me just the the challenge that we have or, or perhaps our weakness of handling well bad news, especially when we are provided with solutions to the bad news of our lives. How many times have we been to a a doctor, even ourselves, and we have received some kind of bad news. It ranges on a spectrum. And then we are given some prescription of either a medication or something that we are to do or practice. And then we go home and we kind of flounder in that. It just says something about us. It's something that we need to, <clears throat> to take note of and, and own and by God's grace address. Because there's something far more important than physical prescriptions And those are the spiritual prescriptions that God has given to us. And that, in fact, is what we're talking about when we talk about the spiritual wealth and riches that are ours in Christ. Can you imagine if we acted in regard to spiritual prescriptions the way that those statistics reveal that we do with medicinal physical prescriptions? Well, of course, you know that that's the case for us too. You probably know that by experience. I know that by experience because as, as I look across the Word of God, as we study the Word of God every week in, in ABF and we continue our discussions after our time together in worship during community groups throughout the week, I find all the time all kinds of prescriptions and promises and guarantees and hopes and words of comfort and what words of, of encouragement and words of confrontation and help. They go right over my head. They go in one ear and out the other, or they don't even get in the one ear because I'm just not listening. I'm not making good use. Why don't you imagine it this way? 
Close your eyes for a moment, and I want you to imagine a scenario where all of us have been invited, but perhaps we've, we've won a big contest, and we're invited out to an incredible resort on the coast somewhere, a tropical place. It is beautiful. The sun is shining. The temperature is perfect around the clock. It is full of all kinds of enjoyments and happiness. Think to yourself now, what kind of food would be there? What kind of, what kind of uh, opportunities or, or excursions would be there? Perhaps you think, like I do, of taking a, a helicopter trip around this island or out over the ocean to look at dolphins and whales swimming. What else would you do? Think about the pool and, and all, of the, all of the luxuries and enjoyments. Think about the, the day spa where you could go and have a massage. They could do the thing with the hot rocks and imagine all of that. And all of that has been gifted to us. But then once we get there, we just stay in our room. And we watch court TV, and we do the occasional wordle every 24 hours. That'd be a shame, wouldn't it? That would be a shame. Well, I've got to tell you that my Christian life is often like that. It is exactly like that. Because while it's not in Christ that we have been given flippant pleasures, those are flippant pleasures. Floating down a stream, it's a, that's a flippant pre- pleasure. It's a wonderful thing, but, but it's, not, it's not the ultimate. The food that I would enjoy, it's, it's a wonderful thing, but it's not the ultimate. But even here when I've been given an entire book full of ultimate promises and hopes, I'm so often on Wordle. I'm so often sitting in my room, watching TV, wasting my time, maybe enjoying some of the physical delights of the world, but very seldom making good use of the spiritual. We want to use this text to encourage us, to motivate us, to hear God's prescription to us, and by his grace to make good use of it if we can. As we come to this text, we find that we're talking now in the last portion of Revelation chapter 3 about the last church in Revelation. It's a church in a place called Laodicea. And actually, this text goes farther, goes to the end of chapter 3, but because it's long and there are a couple different things to look at, we're going to split it in half, half today and half next Sunday. But as you read through the, the interaction between the Lord Jesus and the church at Laodicea, you find something interesting if you remember the details of the previous churches that we've talked about already. And that is that the church at Laodicea receives no compliments. They're not admired by him for anything. He doesn't do what he does with some of the other churches where he goes in and he starts listing off these different things that are really going well among them. Rather here, something serious is going on. Maybe even something almost more serious than in the other churches because he cuts right to the chase. And he gets right at what is the essence of their trouble. And we see this spread out across the, these verses this morning in verses 14 through 19. And we want to take them kind of, kind of one truth at a time. And here's the first. What we see is the ultimate center of the problem of the church at Laodicea is that worldly wealth, the world around them, the enjoyments of this world had blinded them of their true need. 
Let's look first at verse 14, because we see that same pattern where we hear this declaration of who is speaking to the church. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There are two passages here in Revelation, in particular, right here in this text, in the text next Sunday, that I have often misunderstood, that I've often misinterpreted. There's one coming up next week, and it's that sort of more famous verse that talks about uh, Jesus standing at the door and knocking, and if anyone opens the door, he'll come in with them. I have so often misunderstood that, and we'll see it next week and try to make good sense of it a better sense of it than than I have made at other times in my Christian life. But there's another one that I've misunderstood, and it's right here in our text this morning. It's this bit about being lukewarm. You see, I've often, when I read this, read into it uh, my own kind of vocabulary or concept of the problem that Jesus points out, which is being lukewarm. This is the way that I have interpreted it earlier on in my Christian life. I interpret it as Jesus saying, like we would today, that it's, it's good to be on fire for Jesus. That would mean that you're really hot. You're, you have a burning fire in your heart for Jesus. Or else, you have no fire for Jesus. Your heart is cold toward Jesus. And the problem is that they're fence sitters. They're in the middle. They're not hot for Jesus, but they're also not cold for Jesus. And because they're sitting in the middle, they're really hard to reach, such that God would prefer that they would be on fire so that he would have hold of them, or that they would be freezing cold so that they could come to know their need of him. But because they're lukewarm, they're sitting in the middle, that they are missing out on the abundant Christian life. Well, I don't think that that's actually what this passage is about, though that's the way I've often thought about it. Because when we consider it in the context of what's going on here in the church of Laodicea, And the rest of what we know about the way Jesus talks about the Christian life, that doesn't make much sense. That's actually kind of more of maybe a modern or American way to think about hot and cold. But rather what's going on here is that Jesus is describing a kind of lukewarmness that isn't about commitment, it's about purity. Because instead of being hot or cold as though heat is good and cold is bad, In fact, in the context of the church at Laodicea, both are good. Because it seems as though what he's referring to is a kind of metaphor about the water system in Laodicea. Of course, at this time and lots of places, one of the greatest concerns is how how are we going to get healthy water to sustain us? And so some places had access to water that was pure and it was cared for, it was cleaned, either because it was heat treated or came from a hot spring like in Hierapolis. And so the water that's pumped through the city and that the people are drinking every day is wonderful to drink. But in Laodicea, historically, what the problem was is their water did not have that kind of treatment. In fact, it was tepid water. And while it turned out, it began, originated sort of safe to drink, that as it was piped through the city, 
it would become infected. Bacteria would grow in it and it would become sickening. And therefore, he is drawing this analogy about them, pointing out that they are lukewarm. It's not that they're not hot enough for him or that they're too cold for him. It's rather that they aren't really committed to him at all, that their lives are infected by something else that's taking his place. You see how serious he is about this thing of being lukewarm because he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The human body is is an amazing invention all around. Even when you think about this kind of gross experience that we have when we become sick and we, we throw up, because it has everything to do with the way that our bodies care for itself. You know, it's an amazing process that, that your body is, is so well-tuned to what's going on that, that as soon as something foreign comes in, it triggers this whole reaction, even in your brain, that, that, that triggers the response to, to prime your body to expel whatever it is that's making you sick. Well, here Jesus is using this very ordinary, very graphic, gripping picture of the way that their lukewarm lifestyle, meaning that they were more impressed with worldly wealth and possessions and treasures in this life than they were with spiritual wealth and heavenly possessions in the life to come, that he was to vomit them out. That they were to him a, a sickness, that they were infected, that they were a bacteria, a virus, that needed to be expelled. Think about that picture for a moment. Think about this, which is often lost on me, probably you too, when we read the word of God, especially in the book of Revelation, we lose sight that these are real people. Can you imagine for a moment what it would be like if the Lord Jesus himself said to you, you make me sick. The way that you're living your life, the way that you see your life, the way that you are operating in this world, it just makes me want to vomit. Because you, you don't know anything about me. You don't look anything like me. I don't even want to be around you. I want to violently expel you. Those are serious words. Those are serious words. And we ought not to think that we're never in a situation in our lives where Jesus might say that to us. He might. Not to think that, well, we are kind of above these folks. I mean, we're not like these folks. But that's exactly what went wrong for them, isn't it? That's exactly what they said. They would look around at other people, the centers of the world, and they would say, we're not like those folks. I mean, look at all the stuff that we have. Look at our wealth. Look at our lives. Look at what our lives are made of. We are good people. We have got it together compared to all of these, these other wretches of the world, all of these other miserable people, poor people, blind people, naked people. I mean, look at us. We are really we're really on to something. We're really making it. But you see, that is exactly what Jesus says here that he hates. 
There's a kind of hinge here in verse 17, a hinge between the diagnosis and the solution, and it shows us very clearly what was their lukewarmness. It was not fence-sitting. It was not being half in, half out. It wasn't being room temperature instead of hot or cold in the sense of being on fire or being unbelieving. But rather, it was that they had become blinded by the worldly wealth of their lives and they could not see their spiritual need. You hear exactly what he says in verse 17, because you say, this was what they said. This is their hope. This is where they have, have, have uh, staked their lives. I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have no need for anything. And because of that, they simply could not see the truth. That they are wretched. They, in fact, despite all of their wealth and clothing and riches and honor and all the rest, are miserable and poor and blind and naked. Their confession, which is quoted here, is not dependence on Christ, but it's dependence on riches. It's dependence on the things of the world, the way that the world could be controlled, the way that their life could be secured, the way that everything could be held together. If they made the right moves, they acquired the right things, they put the right boundaries in place, their little circle of the world would be just fine. You even see it in verse 17 because it's repeated, I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything, actually three times, over and over, this is what's going on. This is their confession. And for them, it meant what was worst of all, that they felt no need for anything. And you can insert there, the issue is they feel no need for God. What they couldn't see was their true need. I think that if there is ever a text of scripture that highlights what fallen man is like, it's this. If there's ever a passage of scripture that highlights what the world is like, perhaps even in this modern moment, what our country is like, it's this. Overwhelmed by riches, overwhelmed by privileges, overwhelmed by enjoyments, but so overwhelmed by them that we can't even see the reality of our own need. Not until something bad happens, not until some kind of discipline comes, not until some heartache enters our lives and shakes everything up or until something's taken away from us, then we really feel it. And those are really good moments for us, I think. We'll see in a moment, though, that this description of them You see it there in your copy of God's word, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Those are hard words to hear, but they are not flagrant. They're full of compassion. They're full of love. They're full of hope. Because here the Lord is delivering bad news in a most merciful way. Now, when we read that, sometimes we don't think that. If the world read this, they would have nothing to do with this. That does not sound good. That's not the way that our, our, our self-esteem movement wants to think about life. That's not 
consistent with all of our talk about, you know, be self-confident and, 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 uh, and be your own person. That just doesn't fit. Wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. But that's the truth, isn't it? And Jesus is willing to tell us that because bad news delivered mercifully is done with grace and compassion and is exactly what we need. You know, I think that there is a really close connection in this text to my life and to your life in that we need to have this reminder more often. It doesn't mean that we become the kind of people that are going to wallow in the realization of our sin. Of course not. That's not what this this accusation is about. It's rather intended to draw us out to Christ who can fill us with gladness, who can replace what we placed our hope in with something infinitely better. But it doesn't change that this is what I need. I need this reminder on a daily basis. I need to really check what goes through my heart and my mind when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror. When I look into my own life, if I see my life this way, or if I try to see it a different way, a flowery way, a spun way, but rather that I would see my life this way. I hope that you and I will see our lives this way, and it, it, it offers us a question. It's a question for you and for me to consider even this week. How do you see your situation? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself like this? Do you feel, really feel like in your bones, your need for God, your need for him to be abounding in grace toward you? Or has that kind of been lost in the mix of just the life and the world and everything the world kind of tries to tell us? It's easy for that to be lost. But it's important for us to ask that question Do we see ourselves in this kind of light? Is this something that you can, and this is the crazy thing about the gospel, that you can actually say this about yourself with real joy? That you can actually say, I am wretched with a smile on your face because you know someone who gave his life and made infinite abundant promises to wretched people and no one else? Can you say with a smile on your face, I am spiritually in so great of a need. I am miserable without Christ. I'm just miserable. My life just cannot work without Christ. My heart cannot beat without him. He's the heartbeat of my life. Is that the way you see yourself? I think for all of us, we're on a spectrum somewhere. We go back and forth. Sometimes I'm really, I'm really feeling it. I'm really feeling my need. And those are sweet moments. There are other times when I drift back and I start kind of comparing myself to other people and seeing how I think I'm I'm probably better than they are, so things are okay. It's not quite so much alarm about drawing close to Christ today, right? We want to keep pushing together in the direction that reminds us of our incredible need, that we are, in fact, poor and naked apart from Christ, and that he gives us, he gives us what we need and he does it by grace. That's what we see next. Notice this as we move on to verse 18, that the beauty of the gospel for people who can recognize and have eyes to see that they are miserable and wretched and poor and blind and naked is that Christ, 
who is the amen, who is the faithful and true witness, who is the origin of the creation of God, offers to us true righteous wealth that the world can know nothing about, surpasses anything that the world could offer. You see, the church at Laodicea, playing off of what we've read in verse 17 about their blindness to their real situation, had fallen into a trap. It's a trap that again comes up in Scripture, but in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 30. Listen to Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, and you'll hear the trap that they had fallen into. Proverbs 30 says, Two things I have asked of you, God. Do not refuse me before I die. And here they are. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. And then here it is, verse 9. This was the part of the trap that they fell into. So that I will not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? This is the real danger of worldly riches, right? The danger is that they can become a God substitute for us. They can blind us from seeing our real need. I think in ages past, you can imagine how it was back when we didn't have all of the luxuries, which we are grateful for. They're wonderful. God's given them to us so that we'll enjoy them. But nevertheless, they can be twisted by sin. And we think about all the luxuries, all of the... um, uh, all of the things that make life easier for us, all of the technology that, that you just turn a handle and clean water squirts out of the hose, or, or you just flip a switch and all of a sudden your house starts to cool down or heat up in the winter, or you just punch a few buttons and your food is cooked in this box in your kitchen. We have all of these things, but think about what it was like historically. They had all of their wealth. Can, all of their enjoyments, all of their luxuries then, they distracted them and blinded them from their true need. But has there ever been a time like this? Has there ever been a time like this when we are in greater danger of being in this situation? There's none like this. We want to be careful to honor and to observe what we read in places like Proverbs 30, verse 9, and have a real sense of trepidation about it. Because absolutely, absolutely, given the right turn of fortune, given the right blessings in my life, my heart is so tainted by sin that I will forget the Lord. I will have everything that I want. I will surround everything here. I'll I'll get all the rules in place so that everything works to my advantage. And then I'll forget the Lord. I'll say exactly what Laodicea said. We have no need of anything, what do I need? This was the great trouble for them that they did not feel their need. It's good. It's good to feel needy. I know that's a feeling that we don't like. It's a feeling we try to push off. It is a beautiful feeling, but sadly, they did not feel it. But Jesus gives them an answer. He gives them an antidote to this problem. And it is an incredible answer. Notice the way that he speaks to them in such a down-to-earth, eye-to-eye way, relating exactly to them so that they can understand what he offers in himself. Notice what he says. He says, I advise you to buy. He knows that they're into buying things. That's what they think about all day long. They only think about what they need to buy. 
So he plays that into their situation to help them see what they really should be buying, that he would open their eyes to their ultimate need. I advise you to buy from me, and he gives them three things that they are to buy. It's three ways of talking about their current need and how Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfiller of their lives. Notice what he says. He says, buy gold refined in a fire. That's a way of talking about gold that's pure. It's not just earthly gold. He's not saying literally go buy gold and everything. We see that on the TV a lot, don't we? Buy gold. Now's the time. Everything will be stable in your life. He's talking about spiritual gold. He's talking about heavenly riches, true riches, the spiritual riches of what he values. He says, stop buying what you value here and start, quote, buying what I value there. Well, what is that? What are those things? Because in this case, he doesn't exactly say the thing to buy. He just says gold. Well, I think it's clear here that what he's saying is, buy me. What does God treasure in heaven more than Christ? What is the gold of heaven? It is Christ himself. That's what makes this and the rest of the gospel so incredible, is that when Jesus is offering you something, he's offering you himself. He's not offering you a thing separate from him. He's not offering you something simply in the world. He's offering you himself. That's what he gives to us through the gospel, through the cross. And therefore, he says, buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you may become rich. He goes on and he says, next, also buy white garments to cover your nakedness. He is doing them such a wonderful blessing, giving them such a gift in this idea that they could buy white garments because this is the thing they don't realize. They don't realize that they're naked. We read that earlier. They need to be clothed. They have clothed themselves. They've clothed themselves in all of these beautiful purples and an array of colors and, and, and metals, gold and silver and everything else. They are shining. And yet they don't know in reality, they're actually naked. They need to be clothed. It actually is very similar to the poem or story by Hans Christian Andersen, The Emperor Has No Clothes. You probably heard this repeated over and over again in different ways, but the gist of the story is that there are two swindlers who arrive in a capital city of the emperor, and he spends lavishly on clothing all the time. He's always trying to clothe himself, even at the expense of the people that he's supposed to be serving and all of the state matters. He pours all of the resources of the kingdom into his own wealth and into his own clothing. And so these two swindlers come along and they, they pose before him as weavers. And they come and they promise, knowing how luxurious he loves to dress, that they can provide him clothing like no one else. In fact, it is clothing that is invisible to all of those other people that have been trying to get you to change your ways. All of, all of the stupid people of the world, the ignorant people, they can't even see these clothes. They can't even appreciate these. What we're going to give you is like, is like nothing else you or anyone else has ever seen. But he's so blinded by his own love to clothe himself that he takes them on and he puts them to work 
developing his wardrobe. And they set up a couple of, of looms there, but there's no thread in it. It's all invisible. And you know, all of his, even assistants, they, they don't want to look stupid and foolish to him because they would say, I don't see anything. And so they go along with it. And then eventually they say that the wardrobe is complete and they, they, they pretend and mime to dress him in this wonderful invisible cloak. And then out he goes, paraded through the town. And it is an incredible moment of humiliation. Because no one wants to say anything to the emperor until one child yells out, look at that, the emperor has no clothes on. Incredible humiliation. This is the thing of dreams, nightmares that I have walking out in public. You know that. But that cannot touch the spiritual humiliation of being spiritually naked. Being naked of righteousness. Being naked of the clothing of heaven. How gracious is Jesus to then say, buy from me. Buy from me white garments, righteous garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. This is full of hope. It's full of grace. He doesn't come to these people who have, who have no place for him and have forgotten him and replaced him with worldly riches and shaking a finger in their face. It's incredible. It's a totally different Jesus than the one that I have so often known in my Christian life. The Jesus that I've known has been really, really angry. He's really bitter. He, he hates people who do this. And while that is in one sense true, his love is triumphing. And even here, this is what he says to these people. Buy from me clothing. I will clothe you. I will clothe your shame. I will take it away. I will protect you, and no one will see it. But not only that, he even can offer them not just a covering for themselves, but a solution for their very problem, because he says, third, buy I salve. He says, um, and I salve to apply to your eyes so that you may see. This is going back to exactly what their problem was. This is going back to exactly what your problem is, what my problem is. I can't see. I am blinded in so many ways. I have so many blind spots. Blind spots about my own sin. Blind spots about my temptation. Blind spots about other people. Blind spots about ministry in the church. Blind spots about the community. Blind spots about problems in our world. Blind spots about social issues. I am blind in almost every way. But he offers this supernatural solution this ISAB. It's most likely another kind of reference back to Laodicea because one of the things that they were known for is using a, a spike nard and some other things like that to address ear problems as well as eye problems. They had become known for developing a kind of ointment. By the way, if you're into like essential oils, don't put spike nard near your eyes. That's not a good thing. But for them, they had a way of using these different ingredients in order to heal certain vision problems. So he's even pointing back to this about what was going on among them to show them that he has something even better. That even though spiritual cataracts had formed over their eyes, blinding them from seeing their true condition, he was going to open their eyes to something even better. You heard it earlier in the public reading of scripture text. Listen to it again. Paul tells Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. You notice first that it's not a bad thing to be rich. 
It's not a bad thing to have wealth. It's what the wealth does to you. It's what you do with the wealth. And here it is, that they are not to be conceited or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Enjoy those things. Enjoy the resort. Enjoy the gifts of this life. Enjoy these worldly pleasures that he's given to us, but don't set your hope on them. Don't let them become God replacements. Don't focus on them. Focus on Christ. Glorify Christ because of them. Instruct them to do good, he says, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good reputation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. If you're here this morning or maybe you're watching on this live stream or a recording and you are considering Christ, you ought to stop and hear this incredible promise. He offers himself as the ultimate wealth in the world. He offers to us his righteousness, apart from which we cannot even see God, and he promises to give us even his own vision so that we can see rightly again. It is an incredible trio of his blessing that comes to us in the gospel. But there is a warning. If you're hearing this and you consider this, and then you walk away, you are a fool. You are turning your back on everything that matters. You'll be left with nothing that matters. You'll be left with a world that is uncertain in its riches, and you will deserve whatever comes upon you because the Lord is full of grace and mercy, and he is extending it to all, and he is welcoming the world to come to him So don't walk away. What should you do? You should do what we are so good at. Buy. Buy, buy, buy. Buy Christ. Take everything you have and put it on Christ. And do it all by faith. This is the beauty of the gospel. that To buy Christ or these... these, uh, clothes that he gives to us of righteousness or to have eyes so that we can see again. We don't buy them with our works. We don't buy them with our deeds. We've already seen what we do with our deeds and works. We buy them with our faith. So we take what is most important to our lives and we place it all on Christ. That's the challenge of this text this morning as we come to a conclusion seeing this very last brief point that makes all of this possible. Notice this last, that the love of Jesus The love of Jesus is what transforms us into this greater wealth in spiritual things. Again, it's not the things that we can do. It's not what we have to offer. It's actually his love. His love toward us in promises and incredible ministries of grace, even to these Christians at Laodicea and to us, is what makes all of this possible. It's what makes the Christian world go around. It is the love of Christ. Those whom I love, he says, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Two quick things to notice here. He loves us. And because he loves us, he does what true love does. It offers to us what we really need to know. 
He is not afraid to tell us the bad news because he has good news of love. I looked up on the internet the other day to find out what the internet would tell us about real loving friendships. What does a real friend do? You would be surprised. Well, maybe you wouldn't. You'd be surprised what the internet says. Listen to this. It's almost Every list is almost exactly like this of, of common qualities of a good friend. A true good friend makes you feel understood. They're natural givers. They don't talk behind your back and are loyal. They don't judge you. They don't have childish expectations. They take real pleasure in helping you and are genuinely happy for you. And you know what it doesn't say anything about? It doesn't say anything about telling you the truth. It doesn't say anything about telling you the bad news. That you're miserable. You're wretched. And you're blind and you're poor and you're naked. But that's what real love says. Because real love has an answer. And look at this. Real love has an answer that makes a real difference. Real love lovingly rebukes. Real love lovingly disciplines. Because real love in that brings about, listen to this, zealousness and repentance. Zealousness. You know what that is? That's cheerfulness. That's what, that's what zeal is. People who are zealous are cheerful. They are happy. They are glad to be doing whatever they're zealous about. That's what it means. And what does his love do? It makes people cheerfully repentant. It makes people cheerfully humble. It makes people cheerfully miserable, cheerfully wretched, cheerfully poor and blind and naked. And because they're cheerful, they are willing with all that they are to pour their lives into Christ because he has offered them everything that they need. That's the final application this morning is for us to to do this hard thing by God's grace to connect love and rebuke in our hearts because when we do, we see God's loving rebuke of us. We see the truth of who we really are and our need for him. It leads us to come and drive into him so that we will change and know him. How will you and I grow to receive and take God's spiritual prescription? He's given us this prescription to buy from him. Are we going to do that? Are we going to take this on? Are we going to do like, we've, like we do with those, those medicines? Let's not let that go unfilled. Let's not let that go untaken. That means that each and every one of us and all of us together need to embrace it, hear it. Go back to this text. Read it again. It is profound and rich and comforting and helpful. Go back to it. Don't let anything replace it in your life. And don't let anything replace it in mine. Let's stand together and pray and thank God for his word and ask him to help us. We need his help. We need his grace to put these truths to work in our lives. Our Father, as we stand together, we lift our voices to you in a moment by song, but now in prayer. And we call out to you, asking you for your help, asking you for you to work in us your grace and your mercy because we see reflected in the pages of this passage ourselves. We want to see ourselves more clearly in this way. We are in need of you. We are needy. Like no one else in the world, we are needy. And we feel it and we want to feel it more. So we pray that you would impress upon us our great need and that you would drive us to yourself. Lift our eyes so that we would see the incredible zeal and gladness and cheerfulness that you offer to us 
in Christ by repentance as we give our lives to you more and more and more every day. We want that to be the reality of our hearts and lives. Even as we sing now, may it be a a precursor to the song that we'll continue to sing day after day as we go forward from here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.